Welcome to the Indianola First Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Our prayer is that this message will inspire you, encourage you, and launch you into life-changing action. Back during the early 1740s, New England was experiencing a great move of the Holy Spirit, which broke out into a revival. It's often referred to as the Great Awakening. Preachers from congregations throughout this part of the country had been inspired by George Whitfield, who was an internationally known preacher who toured New England in 1740. He traveled from small town to small town preaching sermons that fired up Christians as he spoke of damnation and those who were lackadaisical in their faith. As these preachers began to itinerate from town to town, they attracted huge crowds wherever they ministered. In 1741, one of these preachers, Jonathan Edwards, was asked to preach to the congregation in the town of Enfield. While most neighboring communities had received this great awakening and the messages that these preachers had been preaching, the congregation in Enfield had a reputation as being stubborn and stiff-necked. They were somewhat complacent in their worship and weren't going to change their spiritual habits for anybody. Jonathan Edwards rose to the challenge of reaching these stuck-in-the-mud Christians by writing one of the most powerful sermons in history. It was a scathing, fire-and-brimstone-type message that called the people to repentance. You may have heard of it. It was entitled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And he delivered it at the Enfields Congregational Church on July 8th, 1741. It was a long, unrelenting sermon that terrified those present. So much that they began forsaking their sinful ways and rededicating their lives to God. With his Puritan intensity, captivating oratory, and intensely frightening imagery, Edwards made the the wrath of God seem truly tangible and real as he drove home the sermon's main message. There is nothing that keeps wicked men at any one moment out of hell except for the mere pleasure of God. Jonathan Edwards likened sinners to a spider dangling over the fires of hell by a mere thread. Eyewitness accounts said that his message was so astonishingly effective that he was interrupted several times by loud shrieks and wails from people in the audience who were feeling that the prospects of eternal damnation were just all suddenly just too real. The conclusion of his sermon, Sinners in the Hand of of an Angry God, told about the, the hope of salvation from death and hell through dedicating one's life to Christ but it was barely heard. The conclusion was barely heard because the crowd had fallen under such conviction and the weeping and the wailing was so loud from repentance that, it, that, that nobody could hear what he was saying. It is said that Jonathan Edwards and two other ministers with him worked very late into, into the night that evening to pray for and help dispel the fear of those who were so convicted of their sin as they led them into rededication to Christ. I want you to understand something. That message preached by Jonathan Edwards was not preached to the unbeliever. It was preached in church to believers who needed to repent for their complacency and for their lack 
of relationship with God. Jonathan Edwards' visit to Enfield marked one of the most memorable events of the entire Great Awakening. Sinners in the hand of, hands of an angry God, this sermon was later published into a pamphlet and became one of the best-selling pieces of Christian literature of its time. And I tell you that story because as I went through this week's reading of Hebrews, I began thinking about the spiritual climate that we live in, how we live in the most blessed nation that the world has ever known. And thank you, God, that we live in a blessed nation. It's a mess right now. It's troublesome right now. It's hard to watch the news. The politics are, are just ridiculous. But we are blessed, church. We are blessed because we can meet here and worship our king. There's even states in our country where that's not happening. Thank God we can do it here. We are blessed beyond belief. And I began thinking how much of the church in America is more focused on what and how they can live in uh, and hold on to their blessing here in this life as if it's not all going to burn up anyway. And I thought about people who yell, don't judge me, while at the same time they are desperately trying to justify their own sin, their blatant sin. I thought about how biblical morality for so many, even within the church, is just a matter of convenience instead of the very motive from which they make life decisions. We say all the time here, if the Bible says it, I believe it and I'll live according to it. Come underneath the truth of the word and live according to it. But you know what happens so often in so many Christians' lives in America is they pick and choose what works best for them out of the Bible. Folks, you can't do that. Jesus calls us to an all or nothing faith. This isn't some buffet, a bonanza or Golden Corral, or wherever your favorite buffet is. You can't pick and choose what you want. If the Word of God says it, we do it. I said if the Word of God says it, we do it. And I began to think about all this. I thought about how inward relationship with Christ has been replaced with and exchanged for in outward religiosity. We talked a little bit about that last week. And I thought of all these things as the subject of individual apostasy was introduced by the writer in Hebrews 3.12. It says, be careful then, dear brothers and sisters. Make sure that your own hearts are not evil and unbelieving, turning you away from the living God. Remember again that these Christians that are being written to, they weren't unbelievers. They were believers in Christ. The writer of Hebrews is saying that we have to be careful. We can fall or we can fall into unbelief and turn away from the living God. But I'll get back to that in a minute. The very beginning of chapter 3, he declares that Jesus is the high priest of our great salvation. Then he writes about Jesus being greater than, the, than, than Moses, who God used to give us the law. God used one man to give us the law, Moses, right? And this law contains, contained the means by which people could stay in right standing with God. The Mosaic law contained many rules, many ceremonies, many do's and don'ts, but it came down to the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sins. Just putting it in a nutshell, there's a lot of rules. And just as God used one man, Moses, to give us the law, God used one man, Jesus, to fulfill that law. 
You see, God has a high standard. His standard is perfection, church. Anybody meeting that, that, that standard here today? Perfection. That's what he expects. That's his standard. And we've all used the phrase, nobody's perfect. But Jesus was and is. He lived a perfect, sinless life. Man is sinful and can't reach the perfect standard of God. That is, that is what we learn from the law. That's the whole reason, as you read through the Old Testament, you see people trying to live up to God's standard, and they fail, and they fail, and they fail. And, you're, and, and many times, I don't know if you're like me, but you start thinking, what is wrong with these people? Can't they get it right? And then I remember, what is wrong with me? Can I get it right? Because we all fail. We all fall short of the glory of God. Try as you may, you cannot be perfect in your strivings for righteousness. God, however, made a way through the blood of his only son, a blood sacrifice, an offering uh, up of his perfectly lived life. He, he gave his life on the cross. He died in our place. It was an appeasing or a propitiation of our sinful condition. It is a gift for all, once and for all. A way to heaven that every person can choose to receive. And just as Moses was revered by the Jewish people and should be revered by us as one of God's faithful servants, Jesus, as the one who fulfilled the law, should be revered all the more. He is greater than Moses and God's only son. He's worthy of more glory than Moses. And that had to be pretty shocking to the readers when they read that for the first time. Greater than Moses? Yeah, greater than Moses. So Jesus is greater than everything linked to the old covenant. He's greater than the prophets, the priests, the angels, and even Moses. Then the author reminds his readers of what the old covenant scriptures say. In Hebrews 3, 7 through 11, that is why the Holy Scripture says, that's what the writer puts down, today when you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as Israel did when they rebelled, when they tested me in the wilderness. There your ancestors tested and tried my patience, even though they saw my miracles for 40 years. So I was angry with them and said, their hearts always turn away from me. They refuse to do what I tell them. So in my anger, I, this is God speaking, right? I took an oath. They will never enter my place of rest. And really, the author of Hebrews here is quoting Psalm 95, 7 through 11. You can write that down and read it later. He's quoting Psalm 95 here. He's reminding them of what the word of God says. And when the psalmist was being inspired to, by, by God to write these things down in Psalms 95, he was referring to the actions of the Israelites, God's chosen people, when they were in the wilderness. They saw the miraculous hand of God, rescuing them from the tyranny of slavery in Egypt, defending them from the horses and chariots of Pharaoh. You remember, let my people go, right? It's one advantage to having a little bit of a cold. You can talk low. But God rescued them from the tyranny of slavery in Egypt. He defended them from the horses and chariots, provided for, for them food and water in the middle of the desert. 
And remember that after they had seen God part the Red Sea and completely rescued them, that, that, that almost immediately they started grumbling about their situation. I mean, you got a God who's doing miraculous things right in front of you, and within like, I mean, I don't know how long it was, but it was a very short time, they're complaining and murmuring and grumbling and like, man, we should, been, we should just go right back to our slavery because it was a lot better there. At least, at least we knew what was gonna happen the next day. Church, we're no different. While waiting for Moses to come down the mountain with the law, they grew tired of waiting. They crafted and worshipped a graven image. They complained all the way to Canaan. Canaan was the place that God promised them, a place of rest, a place of prosperity, a land flowing with milk and honey. That's what he promised them. And upon camping near this land of blessing, they finally get there, complaining all the way, they became fearful of the inhabitants of the land. They sent spies in, and 10 out of the 12 spies that they sent in to check out the land came back with negative reports, and the people began to rebel again. It's like, you're right there. God has forgiven you so much. You're right there about ready to step into the promised land, and you start grumbling and complaining and rebelling again. And God had enough. He was so fed up with his people that he didn't allow any of them to enter into Canaan, into that land of rest. Now, I, I don't know if you see the parallels of how this scenario works with us and the believers in Hebrews. And I don't know if you can all see the parallel between both of Hebrews and us today, but l let me break it down. It, it, it really becomes apparent when, when you meditate on it a little bit of what the writer is saying in Hebrews 3, 7 through 11. God gets fed up when his people whom he continually protects, blesses, and provides for start allowing unbelief to settle in their hearts. I want to say it again. God gets fed up when his people whom he continually protects, blesses, and provides for start allowing unbelief to settle in their hearts. That generation of Israelites was not allowed into Canaan. They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years until they all died. They missed their Canaan. They, they, the, the believers in Hebrews were given a warning that they could fall into the same thing. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying here. They could miss their Canaan, or maybe I should say their spiritual Canaan, which was heaven, their land of rest, if they allowed unbelief to settle in their hearts. And church, the letter is for us today as well. We are living in the same dispensation of grace that these two gener or second generation Hebrew believers were living in, the church age. And if we allow unbelief to settle in our hearts, we as God's people can lose the very salvation that we have gained through the blood of Jesus Christ. We can lose our salvation. We can fall away and miss heaven and that process begins with unbelief. I, I think it's very interesting that there's a whole group of Christians that believe that once you are saved, you will always be saved and you can never fall away from God. I don't believe that. I don't believe that doctrine at all. You can't read Hebrews 3, chapter 12 and really believe that. Because he's speaking to Christians and he says, just really blatantly clear 
Put it back up on the screen for me. Be careful then, dear brothers and sisters. Make sure that your own hearts are not evil and unbelieving, turning you away from the living God. Well, if you, why would he say that if you could never fall away or turn away? You understand what I'm saying? Just as the Israelites were rescued from the bondage of slavery in Egypt and led to a promised land, we too are rescued from the bondage of being enslaved to sin, and we are led to a promised land, our spiritual Canaan, heaven. They missed it because of unbelief. We are not immune to missing it if we live in unbelief. And this is unbelief if you break down the Greek word. We're going to get that into that right now. It's a turning away from God due to unbelief. That, that's what apostasy is. I mentioned that word earlier. It's the very definition of the word. Apostasy in the English word is the English word that comes from the original Greek word aphastemi. Aphastemi. Everybody say aphastemi. Okay? Now you can speak Greek. It literally means a turning away or a departing from. It is used here in Hebrews 3.12 as a verb and literally means standing away, away from God. And I, I think that's, that's something to think about a little bit. Standing away from God. To be saved is to be in fellowship with Christ. Salvation brings or, or begins when a person turns away from sin and turns towards God. He or she repents of what is behind him and embraces the Lord who is before him. A person is literally born again as he faces God and welcomes Jesus as Savior and Lord. At that moment, the Holy Spirit enters that individual. Then a new child of God begins uh, the, the life of being a disciple, a learner, and a follower of Christ. Some grow and learn faster than others. We know that. But the most important action in this thing is facing God. We turn from our sin, repent, a turning away from. That's what the word repent means, a turning away from. And I'm going to go to my right because God is right, not left. No political implications there, maybe. So you turn away from sin and you turn towards God to face him. That's salvation. Apostasy is literally standing away. You face him and then you say, you know, I need to do my own thing. And you turn back. Apostasy is not never accepting Christ. Apostasy is once you've turned to God and you've repented from your sin, then you turn back again to your sin. It's the very definition of the word. And obviously flies in the face of the once saved, always saved doctrine. Church, it's so important that we understand this. Falling away is not just something that can happen. It's something that will happen if we allow unbelief to settle in our hearts. And unbelief is not unbelief in the existence of God, okay? It's unbelief that his existence matters. 
It's, it usually starts when this world throws you a curveball. Anybody ever been thrown a curveball before? Or the devil outright attacks you. You go through a difficult time. You pray and you seek his face, but you don't get the outcome that you desired or the outcome that you believe God was supposed to give you. Then the rock of your faith gets a little hairline crack in it until something else happens to you or you find yourself in some circumstance that's, that's like a little bit of water that gets in that, that crack and then, and then it freezes and then the crack becomes bigger and, and the process happens all over again until the whole rock of your faith is just cracked wide open and broken. We receive truth and it's so exciting because truth builds our faith. It has to change us. It has to change the way we think, the way we speak, the way we act. And if we don't back that truth up with our actions, we will eventually fall short and lose the truth that we've gained. I wanna give you something here and write this down. Truth and action must always walk together. They are the left and right feet of faith. Truth received requires action. It always does. You know what happens when you just receive truth and receive truth and receive truth and receive truth and there's no action? You get fat on truth because you never exercise your faith. You're not doing anything. I use this example in my connections class all the time, but there's the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. The Sea of Galilee is teeming with life. It's a beautiful, wonderful place. There's fishing, there's recreation, there's palm trees, there's beautiful beaches, there's people all over having fun and enjoying the water, the Sea of Galilee. And then you go to the Dead Sea and it's stinky and gross and there's, 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 there's no life at all. Nobody builds their house next to the Dead Sea. And there's only one difference between the two. They both have inlets, but only the Sea of Galilee has an outlet. On the map, you'll see that the Dead Sea is south of the Sea of Galilee. And the Sea of Galilee has its inlet, and then it has its outlet, and then it goes right on down to the Dead Sea, and the Dead Sea has no outlet, so it just stinks. You know, it's interesting that the life of the Sea of Galilee feeds the Dead Sea, and the Dead Sea still isn't alive. And to me, it seems a little bit like some Christians who receive, 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 but never do. There's no action to their faith. Truth and action must always walk together. They are the left and right foot feet of faith. And I'm not talking about a works-based salvation. I'm talking about the new covenant. Christ did everything for you. He sets you free from sin's control. Hallelujah. Amen. You are no longer a slave to sin. Hallelujah. Yeah, someone's happy about it. Maybe some of you are still in sin, so you don't, you don't believe I'm preaching truth. Christ has set you free from sin. Not now you're talking. But if you merely revel in that freedom and do nothing with it, you will miss the whole reason that you were given that freedom to begin with, and you'll lose it. Covenants are agreements. 
between two parties. Our decision for Christ is an agreement with him. It's a covenant relationship. We agree to be obedient to him and he will lead us into our land of rest, our spiritual Canaan, eternity in heaven. And without that obedience, there is no salvation. This is a little bit of a hard message. It's not as hard as sinners in the hand of, the, of an angry God. Without obedience, there is no salvation. And this is what happens to the church, the bride of Christ, that has been given everything by Jesus, who is the bridegroom. We become calloused to our sin. Our lives don't look any different than an unbeliever's, and in some cases, they display more attributes of Christ than we do. We let our faith get cracked. We allow unbelief to set in. Sure, we believe in God, but we don't believe he's really gonna do anything for us. We don't really believe that he is there for us in our time of need. We stop depending on him. When we don't depend on God, when our dependency is not in him, when our sufficiency is not in him, understand something, that's unbelief. Because you're saying you don't believe he's gonna, he, he cares about what you're going through. When you don't pray, that's unbelief. When you don't read the word, that's unbelief. Well, it's just a book. Why should I read it? Someone said to me the other day, they're like, man, I read it and read it, and I just don't understand it, and I just don't understand it. I've been trying to understand it. We can help you. There's so many helps to reading the Word of God. If you're struggling with that, let one of the pastors know. That's why we're here. There's virtually tons, hundreds, maybe even thousands of resources that we can help you with so that you can understand We end up bitter old people, washed up Christians who never learned to stand in the face of trials. We hold on to pride and, and, and point at everyone else when we should be looking in the mirror. Church, I'm not trying to guilt preach this morning in any way at all, but I'm tired of the world winning while the church is grinning. Did you hear what I said? I'm tired of the devil flaunting his stuff out in the daylight while Christians cower in the shadows. It's getting a little old to watch those who once stained the altar of repentance with their tears, now claiming that grace allows them to do anything they want. When will the church once again see, truly see, how fragile of a thing they have made their salvation to be? And not fragile because of any other reason than their own personal disobedience. Their lack of fire, passion, their willingness to become calloused. And I, I really just want this morning for us to be aware that, and, and then live in verse 13 of chapter three. Because as much as Hebrews 3.12 talks about apostasy and falling away, and it's very possible, and it can happen very quickly without us even really knowing it, if we let unbelief set in. Hebrews 3.13 says this, you must warn each other every day while it is still today so that none of you will be deceived by sin and hardened against God. 
Most Christians and most pastors have stopped warning their brothers and sisters in Christ. My guess is they got tired of it falling on deaf ears or they were tired of being accused of judging. You know, it's pretty hard to warn somebody of their sin when they're sinning and them not get, them not get back in your face. Who do you think you are telling me how to live my life? So what do we do? We become silent. And we watch our brothers and sisters just fall away. You know, I love the grace of God. We sang about it this morning. And his grace is enough for me. But you know what? His grace doesn't allow me to live however I want. That's like saying, get married and your spouse can go sleep with whoever they want. I think there's much of the church who claims grace, 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 and really what they're really claiming is, I want to be a spiritual adulterer. I'm going to do whatever I want, and I can because of grace. I'm not trying to condemn anybody here today. I'm not trying to... If you've, if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior and you're striving to live for Him, you're saved. You know? You're saved. But the warning is real in Hebrews here that you have to watch out because you can let unbelief get in there and begin to take you out. And apostasy is real. That falling away, that turning away from God, and it will lead you to a place where you're not allowed into that land of rest, which is heaven for us. We're in this thing together, church. We need one another. We got to lay down the pride, stop clinging to the lie that you're just fine because you know plenty of others that are worse Christians than you. And I don't want to single out anyone this morning, but Honestly, if you've been going down the road of unbelief because of discouragement, that's where this thing starts. That's, that's what the Word of God says. It starts with unbelief. We stop praying. We stop reading the Word. We just, man, God just doesn't care about my plight. That's kind of where it happens for most people, I think. It's not that they stand and go, you know what, God, I don't like you anymore, and they walk the other way. I don't think they do that. But we let discouragement set in. Unbelief gets a hold of us and we drift, and we drift, and we drift, and we walk away. Are you as on fire as you were at one time in your life? On fire for God. Is that my fault as your pastor? Well, if you preach better messages, I'd be more on fire. Tell it to God. Are you as on fire as you used to be? Are you growing in your faith, moving forward in your faith? I've said this a hundred times I, from up here. And I believe it with all my heart. There is no such thing as maintaining your faith. There's only growing or falling away. I don't believe you can just level out. If you're not achieving, if you're not striving, if you're not moving forward, then you're going backwards. 
And if you're going backwards, you could be on the road to a personal apostasy, a turning away from God. The writer of Hebrews was warning these believers who were going through persecution and were experiencing this, I don't know if this is all worth it kind of thing. Think about that in reference to us today. Politics, with all the stuff going on, I mean, it's, people are so careful. To, I've heard people say, I'm not putting political signs in my yard because I'm scared. All these different things going on in our world. And I, I think it's not like exactly it was in, in the time of, that this book was written. I mean, Nero's not using, uh, using us as uh, tiki torches at his garden parties as he did them back then. But there is a level of uneasiness. So let me do what Hebrews 3.13 says. Let me warn you. While it is still today, to get a hold of God and not let go no matter what. To not grow weary in well-doing. To not let go of a prayer life. You know, it's been said many times that if you, uh, you uh, uh, want to empty out a church, just call a prayer meeting. Nobody will show up. I've experienced that here. Man, we call a prayer meeting, everybody show up. And I know we, a lot of us pray ourselves and pray in our own times, and that's fine, but there's also power and agreement in praying together. I believe there's going to be an outpouring, a latter reign of the Holy Spirit, if you will, a time of revival within the church just before Jesus comes back. To revive is to bring something that once was alive and now is dead back to life. And that's exactly what the Holy Spirit's going to do. Joel 2.28 says, It will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, and your young men will see visions. And I believe that revival begins with the church. But a church can't organize programs to get you to seek his face. A church can't pretend to worship in spirit and truth. The organization of a church can't manufacture signs and wonders. All these things come when his church, his people, begin to walk out the truth of their faith. Truth, action. Receive truth, act upon it. It's the right and left feet of faith. And if we have failed in this as individuals, even just a little bit, then we need to repent. You know, repentance is not something that if we have to do in front of one another, it's not shameful. Yes, we're shameful, of, we're ashamed of our sin, that's why we repent. But if the cameras can follow me just a, just a minute here, I don't know if they can for online, but my buddy Eric here, if I do something horrible and I repent and I have to repent of it, I should be able to do that in front of my brother and not feel ashamed to him. I'm ashamed to God, but he should go, man, all that says to me is that you have a right heart and, and oh, by the way, I need to repent too. 
You understand what I'm saying? There should be a desire to see one another come to Christ. A desire to turn towards him all the way. A desire to repent on a continual basis. Because how many know, I might have repented yesterday, but it's not a one and done thing, is it? Because I messed up today. Repentance is constant. Preachers have said we don't need, and I've heard them on the TV, they've said we don't need John, 1 John 1, 1.9 anymore. Do you know what 1 John 1.9 says? Confess your sins and he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. He said grace is so wonderful, God's grace is so immense that we, he forgives us before we even ask him to forgive us. That's what he said. Then why do we need 1 John 1.9? We don't if that's true, but that's not true, and we do need 1 John 1, 9, and we do need to confess our sins, and we do need to repent and turn from our wicked ways and let God mess with us at the altar once in a while. And we don't have kneelers here, but this platform, we don't call it a stage ever, and when people call it a stage, I probably corrected some of you, it's not a stage. Stages are for performing, platforms are for ministering. But this is a platform, but all along here is an altar, and we're having actual kneelers built at some point. Man, when is the church, when is the altars at the church going to be full again? When will people repent and say, I don't, I, I don't want to, I, I don't want to even be remotely close to falling into apostasy? And, you know, I think about some of the revivals that you read about. They were marked with repentance. God's people repenting. I, I, w- I went to Brownsville. I saw what happened there. There was a revival there years ago, back in, like, I think it started in 96. Was that, isn't that right? Something like that. There were some interesting things that happened. It was in Florida. But I saw a preacher preach. I saw people waiting outside the building. Um, Pastor Jared, you went with me. You broke a window or something when you were there. You were just a kid. Um, but anyway, I always got to bring that up, don't I? He didn't mean to. It was another kid who actually broke it. He just used Jared to do it. If you want to know the whole story, take him out to lunch. But I remember having to get there at like 7 in the morning and stand in line till 7 at night just so you could get a chair. That's hunger. That's hunger. And it was a lot of God's people. A lot of God's people. There were people that were just out of curiosity, wanted to see what was going on as well. But you know, when the preacher got done preaching, there was such a conviction in that room that literally people ran to the altar. They ran. Awesome thing to behold. And those moments are, are wonderful. I don't, I, I don't know if anybody could ever live in that kind of, that kind of uh, move of God forever, but it, it's, it, it's incredible to see. I don't know what it would have been like in when Jonathan Edwards preached his message, but the wailing was so loud he couldn't even be heard. That's conviction. Church, I only bring those things up, not because I want you to do that this morning, that's not it. I, I just, we're in a place in this country where the Christians better rise up, not in protest, because that ain't gonna do any good. But rise up in prayer and in the power of the Spirit, be the church that God has called them to be. And it starts with repentance. It starts with getting on our face and saying, God, 
I'm sorry that I haven't been more available to you. This morning, I want to uh, open these altars up. And I want you to feel comfortable coming down, so if you still don't feel comfortable because of germs or whatever, stay in your seat and make an altar right at your chair. Kneel down, turn around in your chair if you want to. If you want to kneel and put your face where your rear end was just sitting, that's up to you. But, you know, you can do that. (laughs) Just keeping it real. But let's have a time. It's only, it's not 1130 yet. Let's have a time where we just let God check our hearts. And if there be any wayward way within me, take it out, Lord. Take it out. Rip it out. I want to repent. I want to be pure and holy, and I want to stand before you, God, and and know that that I'm clean because I've laid all my sins at your feet, and you've taken them all away. This isn't a a message of of condemnation, church. It's a message of of hope because all we have to do is repent and ask forgiveness, and he is faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sin. That's the kind of God we serve. Thanks for being a part of the Indianola First podcast. Join us next week to stay updated on our latest messages.